The Old Testament reading comes from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So I saw that... Um, Carson Wentz and some of the Philadelphia Eagles have made a replacement video for sermons for Football Sunday. And I thought for a minute, oh great, I get a week off, you know, but it turns out it's, it's not on Jonah 3. So unfortunately, instead of getting all of the Eagles preaching to you, you just get me this morning. Um, but let's pray together. God, would you help us to quiet our hearts and our minds right now that we would listen to your voice. May we hear you, hear your call. 
and turn with our whole selves toward you. Would you speak to us this morning? Would you bring light to our eyes and to our minds, love to our hearts, that we may be drawn toward you and drawn toward one another more deeply, more sincerely, more wholly, that we might live more like Jesus in your world. In whose name we pray, amen. We live in the age of outrage. That's what the British magazine New Statesman declared in its final issue of 2016. And I'm no historian or sociologist who is qualified to evaluate these sorts of things, but from my perspective as an armchair observer of cultural trends, admittedly very, very armchair, that statement rings true to me. And I don't know, maybe it does to you as well. Outrage is everywhere. Seemingly more than ever. It's out there, out there. It's out there like in me. At least that's how it feels. And Molly Crockett is a professor of experimental psychology at Yale, and she studies the neuroscience of ethics in general, but of moral outrage specifically. And she has a pretty compelling argument about just why that is the case. She argues that if moral outrage is a fire, then the internet and digital media are like gasoline. And she explains how the internet has explosively transformed our culture of outrage by radically ch uh, changing the stimuli that trigger our outrage, radically transforming the methods by which we express outrage, and radically transforming the individual benefits we perceive for participating in expressions of outrage. She studies the economics of anger, about how out of all of the emotional responses available, um, anger is the one that correlates most strongly to something going viral. And of course, virality is profitable. And so there's this economic incentive out there to provoke one another to anger. That's the number one goal that drives the crafting of clickbait headlines. How can we make you angry enough to click? She also considers how the design of social media responses actually encourages a habit formation of expressing outrage. That online compared to offline expressions of outrage require far less effort and they come at a far lower cost. Outrage is, offline is expressed through mechanisms like gossip or verbal confrontation or even physical confrontation, all of which require a lot more effort and have this potential for a lot more blowback that would come upon you, negative repercussions. But a click, a comment, a reaction, a retweet, an unfollow. These are cheap and easy things, easy to do and at very little risk. And she also looks at how the internet and digital media greatly increase the perceived individual benefits of expressing outrage while also reducing these costs to us personally. How the internet, it gives us larger audiences and not only larger but more sympathetic because the algorithms out there are at work, busily working to provide us with our cloud of witnesses created in our own image, which reduces the risk of our offending non-sympathizers and occurring some shaming, right? While it simultaneously increases the probability of receiving affirmation through likes and retweets and posts. And of course, all of this takes place in a digital world where you never have to look anybody in the eye, which is a big part of it. You never have to deal with the empathic distress of watching your victim squirm. So you're more likely to express outrage because your recipient isn't a human, it's a two-dimensional avatar, right? That you never have to look in the eyes. 
In other words, you and I live in a world that plays by one of the most dehumanizing playbooks that we've ever known. And this world that we live in, that we participate in, it shapes us powerfully, inescapably, and often imperceptibly to relate to one another as hasty, cruel judges who don't have the ability to distinguish between a patient silence, which is necessary for listening or seeking understanding or living wisely in the world, and a complicit silence, that is the unwillingness to speak truth to power, which is morally reprehensible. We're caught up in a world that forms us and rewards us for being hasty judges. Which is why this story of Jonah from the Bible is so relevant and perhaps challenging for us today. I think because we encounter a God here in this story who is not like us. His vision of justice just isn't identical to ours, and that's not his problem, it's ours. In this text, we meet God, the reluctant judge. And if you're Jonah, or if you're someone like Jonah, this God, this reluctant judge God, can be really frustrating, even deeply maddening, because he loves his enemies, and that's just wrong, right? We honestly don't know what to do with that. But that's the challenge, and that's the invitation of this text to us this morning, is to recognize the living God as the reluctant judge who calls us to join him in his mission of seeking justice and peace on earth, not through vengeance, but through mercy, through this world-overturning dynamic of loving our enemies. So if you can remember the story so far, Jonah is the runaway prophet, right? He's the one whom God called to go to Nineveh, and Jonah responded by saying, no way, I'm out of here, and he ran as far as he could in the opposite direction. And if we appreciate just who the Ninevites were, that response makes a bit more sense. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, Israel's biggest and baddest enemy, and the Ninevites they were the worst. They boasted of their excessive violence, their torture of their enemies, and they had brought so much pain, so much damage and death to people like the Israelites, and they gloried in it. They were proud of it. They gloated about it. So to any Israelite, Nineveh was just like evil incarnate. And so when God calls Jonah to go there, Jonah resists God's call in his life, but not just because he doesn't want to go to a dangerous place, but because he knows that when God sends a prophet to a place, that's an act of mercy, and Jonah just can't get with that. To send a warning ahead of a coming reckoning isn't mean. It's merciful, and Jonah understands that that is a possibility if he were to go and deliver this message to the Ninevites, there's this possibility that they might turn. Giving him a heads up creates the possibility of change, the possibility of a different outcome. I experienced something of this. I, I had an opportunity uh, at one point to play a reluctant judge role. Bonnie and I, before we moved to Philadelphia, my wife Bonnie was a high school history teacher. And, um, and one year she organized a summer trip for her students uh, to take a group of students to Italy. 
And I got to go as a chaperone, all expenses paid, not a bad deal. Um, but one of the benefits of being there uh, as a chaperone who's not employed by the school is that when, um, you know, I hadn't signed any contracts or anything about binding myself to school policies. And so when word got back to us that a few of the students had purchased some contraband, let's say, I had the freedom to handle the situation according to something other than the school's very rigid, zero-tolerance policy. And so I got to be the prophet who came with a word of warning before I had to come as the judge who was going to make sure justice was done. And so my message when I knocked on their door was basically this. I don't care what you have. Don't tell me. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave, and I'm going to come back in five minutes, at which point I'm going to search every last inch of this room, and if I find anything illegal, you know what that means. We put you on the next plane home and send your parents the bill and then turn you over to the school administrators to handle whatever other disciplinary action needs to happen next, and you don't want that, and I don't want that. No one wants that, so flush, destroy, trash, whatever you need to, because justice is coming in five minutes, and I promise that you don't want to be on the wrong side of it. Jonah's mission to Nineveh is something like that except with offenders who are guilty of far greater crimes, real crimes against humanity, and real atrocities against Jonah's own people. And the idea that God might just show mercy to Israel's enemy seems so horribly unjust to Jonah in that moment. He just wants God to drop the hammer, because that's what they deserve. That is what they truly deserve, and anything less seems completely unfair. And so Jonah runs away, and he takes to the high seas. But God doesn't let him get away with that, and he goes after him. He seeks him out, and he brings up a storm on the seas to thwart Jonah's efforts to run away. And then the sailors on the boat end up throwing him overboard, and God provides a big fish who swallows him up. And Jonah's in the belly of the fish and descends to the depths of death, as we saw last week. At which point he cries out to God. He turns toward God, not heroically, not admirably, but in more of this way that's like a crying uncle or a throwing up of his hands in light of the obvious futility of trying to run away from a God who made heaven and earth, a God who's everywhere. It's not so much a change of heart and mind that we'd like to see, but he does turn and God does deliver him. And there's this moment where undeserving Jonah becomes the recipient of God's unexpected deliverance as he's resurrected from the dead in this not-so-glorious moment of being vomited out of the mouth of a big fish. And that's where our text that we just read picks up. This word of the Lord at this point comes to Jonah a second time. God calls him again to do the exact same thing he called him to do the first time. Jonah's given this second chance to participate in God's mission of reconciling enemies. And so this time, instead of running away, Jonah goes. Jonah is reconciled to God and now becomes an instrument of God's mission of reconciliation. And what unfolds in this next part of the story, what we just read, is exactly what Jonah feared would happen. The people of Nineveh hear the warning and they repent. They believe the warning of God's prophet. 
and they change their evil ways. The picture we get in this part of the story is this full-scale repentance of the Ninevites. This isn't just some half-hearted effort. This is full tilt. The whole city is caught up in this movement of turning toward God. I mean, if this were Philadelphia and the city officials saw Jonah coming, they would be greasing the telephone poles to make sure this repentance didn't get out of hand. But it does. Everyone repents. Even the animals are covered with sackcloth, and they fast, and everyone's bearing the sign of repentance, and they turn from their evil ways and their violence. Even the king gets off the throne and gets down in a position of obedience and humility. And then in verse 10, it says that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Jonah's worst fear comes to pass. God shows mercy to the Ninevites, the Hitlers, the Weinsteins, the Larry Nassers, the you fill in the blanks. The worst of the worst the most obviously evil people in the whole world who should be the very last to get off the hook. And God decides not to drop the hammer and shows mercy instead of vengeance. He's the reluctant judge. And man, is Jonah going to be upset about this. We'll explore more together next week about just Jonah's interaction with God around this and have more of an opportunity to consider these dynamics. Um, it's a sermon we could probably title something like, you know, Jonah throws a tantrum and God drops the mic. But um, I think we've called it something a little more decent and in order than that. But the important thing for us to see here is that Jonah goes into Nineveh preaching a warning that the city's going to be overturned. And what happens? Exactly that. The city is overturned. We expect it to be an overturning by way of God's judgment, of God bringing the hammer down. But instead what we get is the self-overturning of Nineveh's repentance, which prompts God's mercy. And of course the whole thing was prompted by God's mercy in sending his prophet in the first place. Overturned, but not destroyed. That's the picture of the effect that we see this in this story of God's transforming mercy and Nineveh's repentance unto life. The Ninevites hear God's call and they wake up. They respond by believing and turning, which is not something they simply do in their heads, but in their whole way of life. And as a result, the inevitable process of overturning that has to happen in order for justice to be done and established in wicked Nineveh. That process is transformed from an overturning unto death and destruction into a process of overturning unto life and reconciliation. And that is what repentance is all about. It's this holistic transformation of our lives that comes through this process of overturning ourselves as a response to God's mercy which prompts God's compassion and mercy. This is the process that had to happen to big, bad, evil Nineveh. It's the process that had to happen to little, cowardly, frustrating Jonah. And it's the process that has to happen to you 
And it has to happen to me if we are going to know the life-transforming mercy of God who frees us from sin and death and then sends us out into the world on a mission to love our enemies. If we're going to live in this age of outrage as those who seek justice, not by way of vengeance, but by way of loving our enemies, then we need to know this God who the Apostle Paul says chose to reconcile us to himself through the death of his son, even when we were his enemies. We need to hear his voice. We need to awaken to his presence. And we need God's light to illumine the dark places of our lives to show us just what kind of overturning we need to be participating in in order for us to begin to know the wholeness of life for which God has created us, to which God is calling us. And in order to do that, we need to experience the compassion and the forgiveness that the righteous cannot possibly know. We need to know the mercy of the reluctant judge. But we also need to know the justice of the reluctant judge. Miroslav Volf is a theologian who grew up in a particularly war-torn and violent area of Eastern Europe, and he's written extensively on violence and reconciliation and memory, things like that. He says that it is precisely our knowing God's judgment that makes forgiveness possible. Because it's only when we know that we can trust God to deal justly with evil that we can begin to do something other than vengeance or cowardice in the face of it. We need to know. You need to know. You need to know that your abuser will have to stand before the holy and just God one day and will have to answer for his crime against you. There are no secrets that are hidden from God. There's no injustice that truly goes unseen and unanswered. And there's no power structure that your abuser can use to avoid that day of reckoning when he or she will have to look God in the eye and answer the question, what have you done to my beloved? And when we recognize the dread of that reckoning, it helps us see that all the outrage we can muster even the viral outrage and public shaming of the entire Twitter sphere, it can, it's nothing, nothing compared to that. Which is not to say that we should not speak and act on behalf of those who suffer injustice. We must, of course. That is an essential aspect of our calling to bear witness to God's kingdom of justice and peace. But rather it is to say that we must not speak out of fearful, rage-filled hearts as if whatever we say and whatever we do is all that's ever going to happen. Goodness, justice, and peace are never established by hating all the right people. They only come by loving our enemy. And we can only really love our enemy when we begin to believe that both vengeance and deliverance belong to the Lord. And we begin to entrust ourselves and our neighbor and our children and our enemies to him the God who made heaven and earth, the God from whom no secrets are kept, the God who leaves no injustice unresolved, the God who leaves no life unexamined, the God who does not abandon his beloved, the God of justice, the God of mercy, the God of gratuitous love, God the reluctant judge. 
whom we meet here in the book of Jonah and who reveals himself even more clearly and powerfully in the person of Jesus. He's the God who lets the death sentence and the destruction fall on himself so that he may extend gratuitous forgiveness and reconciliation to those who don't deserve it. His beloved who've gone astray, like you and like me, like Jonah, like the Ninevites. Deliverance belongs to the Lord, Jonah says. And if we want to begin to apprehend something of the mystery of God's justice and his mercy, we really can only look at the cross of Christ, where we see the reluctant judge deliver himself up into the hands of lawless people so that he may become the judge judged in our place, taking all that condemnation, all the outrage, so that his vindication may be ours. As the Apostle Paul says, there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And the call of Jesus is just this. You who have been reconciled to God Go be reconcilers. Don't be, one, don't be people who spew condemnation on the world. Love your enemy. Seek justice. Stand with the weak. Speak truth to power, but speak truth in love. Love your enemies as God has loved you in Christ. And I think one of the most powerful examples I've seen of this, I saw a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if many of you followed the Larry Nasser uh, sentencing hearings, but... Rachel Den Hollander's statement came. She was the last of the victims to address the judge and, and Larry Nasser, um, her abuser. And it was this statement. If you haven't read it, go read it. She, I think she spoke for 41 minutes in the court. Unbelievable. It was a statement in which she did not shy away at all from giving a full detailed account of Nasser's abuses, the extent of the damage he'd done to her own life and the lives of so many, the truly evil nature of it, and it's a statement in which he's calling the judge to give him the maximum possible sentence in order to say to the world, what is a little girl worth? She's worth everything. And it's a statement in which she also turns to her abuser and she says this. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you've read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you've read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. And she goes on, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. 
Rachel the reluctant judge. Because she knows God the reluctant judge. She knows his love and his mercy and his peace that enables her to speak truth and love and seek justice, not by way of vengeance, but by way of loving her enemy. She has experienced the overturning that leads to reconciliation. And in an age of outrage, there she is, a voice crying in the wilderness of something better. And how sweet and beautiful is her message. I don't know about you, but I want to know more of what she knows. I want to know more of the God she knows. And the beautiful message for you and for me this morning is simply this. When you turn, when I turn, our God of mercy will be there. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the mercy that you extend to us in your son, Jesus. Make it real and sweet and powerful and transformative in our lives, we pray. That as you reconcile us to yourself, you may set us loose in this world to be reconcilers with you. May you bring your beloved home, us, our neighbors, our sisters, our brothers, and our enemies. May we look upon your beloved as you do and love them. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. The offering of